I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are continuing our series on the Godfather trilogy with The Godfather Part 2, the 1974 film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, screenplay by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Okay, so before we jump into talking about The Godfather Part 2, just a couple little business things. Uh, First of all, our question for Spotify listeners is, what's your favorite Al Pacino performance? I'm actually really curious to hear what that is, and if it's (laughs) not Godfather-related, what it might be. I don't know. Jack and Jill, for sure. Um. Uh, also, in the next episode and the final installment of our Godfather trilogy, we will be announcing what our next goal is for when we pass the the next number of patrons and and the excitement that we'll have around whatever that is that I think we figured out, but I don't remember in this <laughs> moment. We definitely know. <laughs> I mean, I can tell by how excited you are to right. announce it. Right. Yes, uh, but we'll have it figured out next time. Don't you worry. Uh, and then lastly, a reminder that we are doing The Book of Boba Fett as our What We're Watching series right now. So we're going week by week and recording episodes on our reactions and thoughts on Star Wars and all that stuff. So all that is happening over on the Patreon. So now let us talk about The Godfather Part 2, the movie that many people (laughs) think is the best sequel of all time, better than the original, like... This is, I think, for a long time an IMDb top 250. Godfather Part 2 was ranked higher than The Godfather, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. It's not the case today, but I think for a while that was the case. Uh, and so I, I think that definitely uh, colored my expectations going into this movie. I'm just like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. people say it's even better than the first one. And it's a really interesting movie. I think... Watching it now, my my main overall feeling was that the present day storyline, while still really, really good, suffers from the kind of unavoidable sequel problems that you have, which is trying to kind of one up yourself. I think it also has a character arc issues where Michael's arc in the first movie was a very specific arc that maybe isn't the best setup for. And now you get to spend three and a half hours with him more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there is a lot of other interesting stuff that's happening in, in that um, storyline. But I think it ultimately gets around all those problems. And the, the reason I still love this movie and could see why people might hold it above the original as like their favorite is the sequel prequel at the same time, structural Mm -hmm. thing that it's doing. Like, it's just so, cool and there aren't that many examples of movies that have done it or have done it this well uh but boondock saints part two did it interesting did it do it well Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) question mark fail off um (laughs) but yeah like getting to see the origin story of vito corleone Mm -hmm. as played Mm -hmm. by robert de niro is just (laughs) the coolest thing uh so yeah so i still really enjoy this movie i don't i don't think it's as good of a movie as the original but there's still a lot to talk about and a lot to like about this movie and i want to 
talk about a couple big points. But so those are my kind of overall thoughts on this film is that it's imperfect, but the structure is really interesting. What about you? What do you guys think about the the structural relationship and this kind of the the dueling stories that go back and forth, not super often. Like we, we spend pretty big chunks of time with each one. Uh, I think especially after we see like young Vito, there's like 40 minutes or something or 35 minutes maybe where we're just in the present day story setting up mm-hmm. lots of stuff. And then we go back and then it's like, surprise, Robert De Niro's in this movie. Um, so yeah, ultimately I think it works for me. What do you guys think? Yeah, there's something that's just really beautiful and harmonious about the approach and the decision to include both of those storylines that of course are doing this like very beautiful parallel, you know, rise and fall kind of, of like the the family basically. Um, And I, it's like wildly ambitious and I can't believe that this movie pulls it off at all. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's, it's just this creates this thematic sort of richness to the story where, you know, we're seeing Vito excel and, um, you know, sort of become this force that he is and like is doing a lot of like good in his community. You know, there's that really interesting subplot where he's like helping a widow keep her apartment kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's there's just this underdog like rise to power that you can't help but root for when you see that his whole family gets murdered right at the beginning. So there's this really um, sympathetic, you know, place where you can just cheer on Vito and then you're seeing Michael fall further and further from grace. And, you know, you make a really good point that I would say the Godfather part one essentially completes the arc for that movie where we see him take over the family business and commit many murders or order the commission of many murders. But it is a really smart decision to then push him, you know, even farther in this movie of like, OK, how far will you go right to defend your honor or the family's honor or whatever it is like and the place that it leaves him is a very like he's basically gone as far as he can go. So as an overall, like looking at the structure and the the big picture arcs that are going on, it's astounding. Like it is, it is just an incredible feat. And I can't believe Francis Ford Coppola like pulled it off and like found this much more story to tell and was able to mine this material for so much more thematic, like richness and, I, I'm just very, very impressed by it. I wouldn't say I like it as much as the first one. I'm with you guys on that, or I'm with you anyway, Michael. And, you know, I think it's, it is sprawling and the structure of like how much time we spend here and there does feel imbalanced. Um, but even so, I'm just, I don't think I've ever seen anything remotely like this attempted, much less accomplished and like pulled off with such flair and like, yeah, it, it's um, it's fascinating how much it widens the world and deepens the themes and like plums the characters' souls in a really <laughs> fascinating way. It's really it's great. Did you just say plums? Plums. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of an oranges person myself. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, I'll get you in trouble. Um, Yeah, for me, I I talked about this a little last week, but um, it's almost like if, you know, I think last week I said if Godfather is Return of the King theatrical, this is Return of the King extended, where it's like, it's all good. It's just 
a lot, you know? Mm, yep. um, and I actually saw this movie in a theater um, two years ago, and I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. And it did feel like a bit of an endurance test, just like, okay, like, where are we? And, you know, w- what's going on with this storyline and that kind of thing. But then rewatching it just this week, I really enjoyed it because I had recently watched it so so i knew where things were going i knew where we were kind of structurally um and yeah if i had to choose a movie i would definitely choose the first one but as you said trisha this movie just does everything so well like i've i never found myself going oh i just want to get to back to this character i want to move on to the next scene like every scene just like the first movie every scene is compelling i want to talk a little bit later about the things something i was sort of tracking about how this movie keeps me engaged rather than sort of pushing me away um and uh and yeah it's just it's just gorgeous and as you said like the um the backstory the the prequel element and then the sequel element and where are we taking michael and what are we doing you know seeing how Vito became who he became and all that kind of stuff it's it's just great um but yeah i think i think it's the you hit the nail on the head which is like if the first movie has a you can say what the first movie is in one sentence, right? You can say like this clean uh, war hero uh, becomes the head of a, like this villainous head of this crime organization. And then the plot of this movie is like, and here's some more <laughs> stuff that happens. <laughs> and that stuff is good. It's interesting, but it does sort of feel like, like, well, where do we go now? And and they go really interesting places. And obviously Fredo, like that yeah. storyline is kind of what makes this movie where you go like, oh, wow. Okay, that is where you go next. And that is like how far along you can keep taking this thing. But um, yeah, anyway, excited to get into it uh, with you guys. But those are my overall thoughts. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as far as preferring the first movie overall. And, you know, I, I, I liked what you said, Tricia, about how, on, on just kind of a big picture level, this movie is brilliant. You know, you're you're having the rise and fall storylines at the same time. And I think that is what, what I want to see in a sequel to The Godfather is if if Michael Corleone is at the peak of his power at the end of the first movie, then it seems natural that you know, this is a disillusionment kind of arc, that the next step is going to be, you know, the fall or the kind of souring of of the the peak that he's reached at the end of the first movie. And I think for me, the reason why uh, I, I I do get somewhat disengaged at parts of this film or uh, can't quite track the emotional beats the way I can in the first film is that I think the, the dominoes that fall that push Michael to go to more, more and more extreme places and to, you know, ruin his family, kill members of his family, like, the the way they fall i i'm not tracking it the as as like you know strongly as i want to i'm not like oh inevitably this is happening inevitably mm. like this is how the fall right. will happen it feels like things happen um and michael makes choices and he makes dark choices uh but i don't know like why he must or mm. why this was inevitable and so i think that's where it doesn't quite work for me in the way that I wish it did, because I think maybe a more concise, maybe a, like a slightly more clear streamlined fall storyline uh, paired with what, what I think I would just leave exactly as it is rise storyline, you know, featuring De Niro. I love 
all the flashback scenes. I love that period. I love seeing New York. I like all of that is so much fun. And so I would basically, if I were to, you know, recut this movie or something, which is probably a horribly blasphemous thing to say, <laughs> um, I, 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 I would want to find a way so that I, you know, I can stay really engaged with that fall storyline feel like dominoes are falling inevitability is closing in on me mm. um and i think that is there in the movie but i think just there's so many details and once it like like the first film so many names so many mm-hmm. deals yeah. being made and machinations and who works for who and why is that a problem if that person did that or um and was michael lying in the last scene or is he lying in this scene right <laughs> like, there's a lot exactly of that. exactly yeah. and like truly not knowing and i think i'm supposed to know at some point but what am i supposed to know uh, anyway, so so I think that's what this movie does. It's, it, I have trouble with it. Is is I see what it's doing, and the final images and the final scenes hit so hard, and then it does work. But I don't feel like I was guided there in the way that I wish that I want to. Mm. Um, so yeah. we can talk about kind of why that might be, and what what is different about this movie than the first one. Where in the first movie, even if I don't follow every detail. I still feel like I'm on a trajectory and and there's a clarity to that trajectory for me personally. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think what you pointed out just there, Brian also is, is a root of a lot of it for me is cause I have the, the exact same feeling that you do Alex of getting lost in the dominoes. And I think part of that seems to be intentional on the part of the filmmakers mm-hmm. where to a certain extent, maybe they're trying to create, you know, you, the audience, sees things the way Michael does a little bit of like, they're not sure who they can trust and maybe everyone Mm. is to be suspected a little bit, but it also is clear that Michael knows things that we don't as audience. And so yeah, there are two scenes back to back where he says that other like person a was the one that I can't, there's no easy way to like, I'm not going to try to do this (laughs) metaphor or whatever, but basically he like the two people that might've double crossed him. He tells both of them, that he knows the other it one was, did it, yeah. but we don't know which is which. And so like, it's cool that Michael is doing all this maneuvering to, you know, bring down his enemies or, or position, position himself however he wants to. But I was left being like, well, did like, is it Pentangeli or is it Hyman Roth? And who's the good guy and who's the bad? Like, is anybody the good guy? Is anybody the bad guy? What does Michael really want with the Hyman Roth? What are we doing here? What's his end game? And I feel like the there's so much time spent on Michael maneuvering through all of that and in, in Cuba and all that stuff where I don't know exactly what the what Michael actually wants the outcome to be. Mm-hmm, right. Mm. Right. Because I think there there's a way to do this where I understand Michael's plan. And and so there and there can be twists and surprises where Michael was wrong or there's a maybe maybe there's a one one piece of the plan was not told to us to give us a surprise the way we talk about heists you know if you if you, if you don't know everything then you can have you know a surprise or or whatnot but but i don't know almost anything about his plan or what he wants and even like yeah has he soured on this deal with roth from the beginning of the story like was right. it already bad or does he truly look up to Roth like this kind of surrogate father figure? Is that genuine? And there's a real betrayal happening there. Uh, so that that is there's 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 kind of a opaqueness to all that. That is that I want to access that story and really understand it. And maybe I just got to watch the movie a few more times. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think it's 
is difficult on the first couple of viewings, at least, to, to really understand who's who and what's what. Yeah. Right. And part of it is like, I would, I want to say that part of all of this is half, not half, but it's a decent chunk of the fun of a Godfather movie actually is like trying to put it together, right? With like big sprawling epics like this, you want, you know, the chess game itself is kind of the entertainment. And so like the movie is, you know, challenging you to look at all the angles and think about all the players and consider for yourself who's betraying who and like why they might be doing that. And so, you know, it, it kind of comes with the territory a little bit. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of other like heist movies and, and I don't know, for some reason, for obvious, obvious reasons, the one I keep thinking about is heat. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that has the same kind of sprawl to it, right. Where it's like, there are these two sides and they're making moves and counter moves and like people are betraying other people. And there's, there's all these, you got to like watch every, you know, watch your back and like kind of keep your eye on all the angles. And that is one of the fun aspects of the movie. And if you do figure it out, you're able to like, I don't know, it, it makes you feel like you unlocked something special or you're like a part of the family now or something, <laughs> right. Where you're like, Oh, Oh my God. Okay. I get it. Where Michael said that to that guy. And that was all like a setup to get this result and like brilliant. He's, you know, like he's a genius and it, it gives you that like special reward when you can do it. Like, and so that's just, I think, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm with you guys. I haven't seen this movie enough times for that to have like all the way happened for me. But if you are watching it for the first couple of times and you can like, remember, like write down every character's name, I guess, and like <laughs> blot it out on a murder board and figure it out. Like it is, it, and like there have been times, there were times this time when I was watching it and I paused it and I was like, hang on and then i like did the calculations in my brain of who who is on whose side and why michael just said what he said and i'm like it's great it is great when it all you know when the puzzle pieces come together it is really satisfying and so i think that probably i can't prove it but that's probably one of the reasons people love these movies mm. is how complex they are you don't want a godfather plot that's too neat and tidy and like just about nothing right it has to be like insanely complicated uh and have these and also have these like detours and dead ends and stuff where it just like and we go over here with you know we talked about the horse head and the guy's bed in the first movie and it's like that has nothing to do with the main plot of the movie <laughs> right but it's yeah it's just one of these like dead ends over here that feels you know interconnected for character reasons and stuff like that and so um i'm not going to get into the godfather part 3 yet uh, but I do think that overall Godfather part two walks that line pretty well where it's it's giving you enough knots in the plot that part of the fun is kind of trying to untie them as you go through it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that makes me think about I sort of was making a list of scenes where I felt like I I was very compelled and very pulled into the plot. And I think it's like this. When when these movies are, um, I'm going to say at their worst because it's The Godfather, but like uh, <laughs> when these movies are doing the thing we're talking about, it's when there's been like 45 minutes between like the last time we heard a character's name and a time when the character is like revealed to have done something, right? Like, oh, it was 
Salazzo. And it's like, what? you know, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like that kind of, um, and, but what this movie does really expertly is juxtaposing two scenes next to each other that, that tell a sort of mini story. So you get these little, um, mm-hmm. these little vignettes almost. So in the De Niro timeline, you've got the landlord at the first meeting with the landlord where he's like, who are you? Get out of here, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, it's my friends about me. Uh, and then you cut right to the landlord coming yep. into his office and stumbling. He can't get the greatest door open. Scene. I got to, you know, scene. yeah, right. It becomes um, a Marx Brothers movie. For a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the Hyman Roth scene where he where he first sits down with him, Michael sits down with him, and they're like, I, I want everything to go smoothly, and da da da. And then the next scene is him telling uh, Fredo it was Hyman Roth who tried to get me killed. Um, and again, we don't necessarily know who which thing is which, you know, it's in some of those scenes, but we know by putting them right next to each other, you are telling us that there is some sort of conflict, some sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for, like dissonance here between these two mm-hmm. ideas. Um, the $2 million never made it cut to Fredo coming in with $2 million. Uh, and that obviously the main one is the Fredo meeting Johnny Ola for quote unquote, the first time, like, Oh, we've yeah. never met. And then what? 45 seconds later, it's like, right. ah, Johnny yeah. Ola told me about this place. And Johnny Ola is the one who calls him like 45 minutes earlier in the, in the movie, right. but you're not going to remember that. Right. And right, that's, yeah. that's where this movie would fail. If, they're like, remember that phone call you got 45 minutes ago? Remember the name of the guy you called? Like, no, of course I don't. So like, but by what this movie does really well is it takes these two, it takes two scenes and puts them right next to each other. So you have not had time to forget that the, like the setup and the payoff. And then when it is an exception, it's something like the Senator um, where right. he where he's so memorable from the beginning of the movie that when we get sort of the horrifying scene with him like an hour in we remember who he is and then when we see him again at like the press hearings we remember who he is because he's such a memorable character you're allowed to get away with it there you're not allowed to get away with it when it's like there's eight heads of families and we're gonna like (laughs) tell you all their names and then 45 minutes later we're gonna tell you one of their names you're gonna be like i I have no idea who that was but okay (laughs) yeah 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 i mean i i think you guys are absolutely right in that part of the fun of these movies is watching the chess game being played but it's also you know chess is is a game of perfect information where you can see all the pieces on the board right and so movies can't be like that because then it wouldn't be fun but it is it is hard then to get that right balance and so my experience is like you're saying brian scene to scene the way it's all coupled together i'm like oh yeah there's stuff happening like michael is playing chess right now mm-hmm. i don't <laughs> know what the state of the board is but like <laughs> yeah. these people are playing the game and yeah. that's enough to be like impressive and you know all of the all of the scenes are great and the performances are great like nothing in this movie is sloppily done like that's so far away from like you know right. what this movie is um it is interesting also that the change from the first one to this one in terms of like you were saying trisha the epicness and the sprawlingness of it and i remember bumping on that probably the first time i saw it as a teenager because you know i liked the godfather it was like dark and they were inside all these like really you know cave feeling underexposed like interior places and then the Godfather 2 was like, we're in Nevada and yeah. we're outside and there's a lake. And it's like, it just, it didn't feel Godfathery to me because it was going to all these other places. 
Um, this time, I, I didn't have that issue as much. But it is interesting the kind of the things that you kind of have to trade in when you're winding out in scope mm -hmm. um, stylistically and all these other things. And I think that's also why having the, the prequel storyline helps keep it grounded because that does feel godfathery quote unquote like, right. from start to finish mm -hmm. like the senate hearings are a really good example of what you're talking about where it's just like wait this is a godfather movie <laughs> right. and, and it works like those scenes are great but it just feels so out like out of left field when you think about the sort of aesthetic and and the feel of of what the first movie set up right yeah this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When part of, I think, what was fun about watching it back to back this time with the first Godfather was seeing the kind of sequel thing of we're starting with a party scene and it's mm -hmm. going to be like a mirror to the party scene in the first movie. You've got the new Godfather, Michael doing the thing you do at, you know, Godfather parties. parties. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's like have like a meeting room where people get in line. And, uh, and that was just, it was just fun to watch that and see the kind of parallels uh, throughout mm -hmm. the movie where it's like, we, we are making a sequel and we know that you've seen the first one and have expectations and the the kind of callbacks. I think I thought all of that was really well done where it, it kind of knew what a Godfather movie was and was kind of mirroring back uh, some structural things and some just, just kind of set pieces from the first one, but it's a new story, new kind of new characters. And uh, it's, it's a different trajectory that we're on with this one. Um, yeah, it was just, it was fun to, to realize how much of a sequel it was this time around. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that what I want from my sequels is what this does really well, which is that it expands the world and it mm -hmm. takes the characters that I care about. So, like, I love that we're not in those dark cave-like rooms. We're not in the same rooms at all, right? Like, they've moved to a different house. And so, like, all the interiors are totally different. And, like, it's just, I want my godfather sequel to take me somewhere else right and and show me what else there is in this world um without necessarily feeling disjointed so the characters are the same ones it's not like they're giving me oh and by the way here's this guy i mean there's a little of that in the business east part but tom is there connie's there fredo's there like Kay is still here you know all these people that i really care about are back and we've got Vito in the other storyline and everything. And so like a lot of the, that stuff is, but, but they're not like treading, those characters are not treading water. They're doing new things. They've been naturally changed by the course of time and the events of the previous movie. I love seeing who Connie is now at the beginning of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Connie's such an interesting character. I love everything mm -hmm. about her arc. Um, but like, she's so different now. Like she was this, you know, knocked around like battered wife in the first movie. And now she's like living her best life and is kind of like, you know, a party girl and um, like so glamorous and, you know, trying, trying to um, 
yeah, get out from under sort of the family thing for a while and, and be her own person in a way that like puts her into conflict with Michael. But she's she's not the same person. Neither is Fredo. He kind of is, but he's doing different stuff. <laughs> uh, but, and you know, Tom is different too because the events of the first movie have kind of changed him. And so I think it's, that's what I want. I want different landscapes. I want sort of different tone. I want more of the same, but I, it needs to feel like it's not stagnant, you know, like it's, it's come through the natural course of time that feels lived in and organic. And like, it's, I wish more sequels did this. And like, there are references also, like there are visual references, there are dialogue references directly to the first movie. Mm. I'm going to make them not very care refuse. Like I, I, anybody else says that to me ever, like in any, <laughs> any Godfather movies, I'm going to scream. But so they're doing something on purpose, right? Like it's not like Francis Ford Coppola doesn't know what the most famous, like iconic things are from the Godfather. Clearly he does because here they are back again. But they don't feel like uh, like winky at the audience or like purposefully fan servicey. Again, they try. They basically are able to work them in organically. In this film, check back in with me on Godfather <laughs> <Part> Three. <laughs> God, I wish I hadn't watched it before we did this podcast. Yeah, I'm still kind of blissfully ignorant. Like I know I've seen it, but I don't remember hardly anything. So. But anyway, um, in terms of its yeah. sequelness, I just feel like mm -hmm. it does strike that right balance of different enough, but also like grounded enough in the first one, familiar enough from the first one. And that's hard to do. Mm -hmm. And it feels like these days studios don't let you do it. <laughs> right. Well, another, another thing the first movie does that I love about it and love about this film is just the period piece-ness of yeah. it all. You know, like just how just authentically rendered like a time and place are in these movies. And mm. this movie... It is also essentially taking what was great about the first film and then giving us more, you know, like, like you said, broadening it out. We get to get two different time periods. We're moving forward in time to this kind of Cuban revolution moment, uh, gambling casino worlds. And we're also going back in time to like 1920s, like Italian ghetto in New York. And it, I just I love getting to simmer in like more time periods that are lovingly and beautifully created. Um, so that's another way that, that it does the sequel thing of giving you what the first movie did so well, but more and, mm. and, you know, more than you could have hoped for. Yeah. That's a good point. And because these movies are largely about America and, you know, the American story by right. being able to like, now we have three pins in the timeline of America, which yes. filling in those gaps. And, and like you're saying, rendering a, a more detailed, map of the trajectory of the american dream kind of thing totally and just you know the older i get the more i just like learning history through movies and so it's it is yeah. fun to see even if it doesn't really mean a whole lot ultimately for like individual characters uh he, like hearing about these businessmen ready to like invest in cuba with this very business-friendly government right before the revolution is really fascinating and you're just just seeing ellis island so like de yeah. in such detail is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I just really respect any film that goes out of its way to, to show a historical moment with such care and such detail. Mm. Ellis Island, where the guy says, your name will be Vito Solo. Solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I thought about that too. See, it's good. It's referencing a classic. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, can we can we talk about Vito for a few minutes? Because yes. no, there's no time. <laughs> <laughs> because I am very. I think it's so that little prologue with him is mm. r- so critical and so compelling. Like it's an amazing choice to introduce us to Vito when he's nine years old. And, you know, for movies that, that basically relegate women to the background or to like sort of being like problems, I guess that are like kind of messing up (laughs) (laughs) all of the men's plans uh, so much of the time or, or whatever they're, or they're more, um, you know, this, one thing that I actually uh, respect is that, you know, you talked about the authenticity of the world, Alex, and how it does feel like absolutely well-observed. This is history. And and the treatment of women in this time, I think, is dead on accurate. It's culturally accurate and like it's historical, right? The, the women characters are like, they are markers of like wealth and status and they are like, you know, family members that are, um, not full partners in that sense, right? They're not allowed in the room <laughs> uh, to make decisions and things like that. And um, uh, anyway, so that's that's all picture perfect. And um, just for the record, I appreciate uh, it's it's hard to do well these days because we're also sensitive um, to like 21st century values, and we like would love to rewrite the past. Um, but that's another conversation. But I think it's so cool to see Vito's mother um, in that like first opening scene with him where she drags him by the hand. So like it's after they kill her other son, they've killed her husband, they've killed her other son uh, because he was an idiot and was trying to like get revenge on the local crime boss. And instead of like hiding her son away, right? It's so, it's so fascinating she just drags him up the driveway of the crime boss and stands him in front of him and is like, this is the kid. Please do not kill him. I'm mm-hmm. here to plead for his life. It is not his fault. He will not hurt you. Um, and then the way that that negotiation goes very poorly, um, <laughs> but she she takes so much control of it, right? Or like does her best to take control of it. She does what she can do. Um, is so critical for understanding who Vito is. I just, I just think it's a hell of a way to start a storyline. Like, I can't commend it enough. It's so compelling. Um, and I don't, I don't think I'll ever get over the scene where the moment where like she tells Vito to run, and then he doesn't, and she immediately gets shot, and it's just, uh, it's horrifying. But yeah, it, it earns everything else. Like, I feel like again when you you put children in peril and like you know, under the thumb of very, very cruel authority, like we will be with them until the end. Like they can do anything from that point on because we understand what survival means to them. Right. We understand that the position they were put in from a very young age to, to, um, you know, uh, to claw their way out of where they started. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's that thing where it makes you as the audience go, please become the godfather and yes. come back and murder come this back guy. And kill right? <laughs> like, it's like, wait a minute, how did how did you just do that to me, movie? How did you make me like root for this kind of thing? That's um, the thing about villains, show us somebody worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um and uh, I do appreciate then when we do get into 
De Niro Vito, um, that we are seeing somebody who is um, compassionate, you know, like when when uh, Dom Finucci makes him lose his job sort of indirectly mm-hmm. um, instead of in, the first thing he do, doesn't do is like plot, make a plot against him or whatever. The first thing he does is like give his boss a hug and say, I understand, <laughs> like you're a good guy and mm-hmm. don't worry about it. And no, I won't accept your, your, you know, food that you prepared for me and that kind of thing. But thank you. Um, so you have these sort of like the very easy look at this kid, his family got killed kind of stuff. Right. But then you also have compassion and complexity within the character mm-hmm. juxtaposed against Michael, who is going further and further down this dark path. And it's like, I'm not saying everything that Vito Corleone did in his life was, was sort of moral, obviously, but we are seeing him do things for kind of more or less the right reasons mm-hmm. uh, in this movie. Um, whereas Michael, we're seeing less and less of that. Right. Well, I think, you know, what Vito has is he ha- he does have values. He does have right. some kind of moral code or just he kind of believes in something. And and I think when we cut back to Michael, we don't really know what he believes in or or like what it's all for anymore. You know, there there's a mm. sense of community and a sense of taking care of other people in Vito's life. And it, in Michael's life, you know, he's not doing this for a community right. or for his family. Like it's it's none of that. It's almost like paranoia and who's out to get me and who can I beat in this game right and it's a very different code of conduct or morality than Mm -hmm. we see Vito exhibiting yeah it actually reminds me a lot of Breaking Bad basically which is Mm. the the plot of that of that show you know you start out with the characters like I'm doing this for my family I'm doing this for my family and then at a certain point you know and and minor spoiler I guess for the last episode you know he finally admits for the first time to himself like I did it for me I did it because I like doing it you know and that is sort of we're seeing the De Niro Vito genuinely doing it for his family and then sort of as Mm -hmm. as the the two godfathers over the course of their lives how that can shift yeah When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I was I was trying to think about like what what is this movie trying to say about mm. Vito, about Michael, about America, about family, about everything because I feel like it's talking about a lot of things. Yeah. And I think I I need to see this a bunch more times to really feel like I can like get my hands around it. But a scene that I'd completely forgotten is the final scene basically mm-hmm. where there is this super like flashback it's not super flashback but it's a flashback to you know around the time of the original godfather where like sunny's there like the whole family is there uh you know they're gathered they're gathering because it's a surprise birthday party for Vito. um and we kind of learn the context of like the war is going on and it's the day that michael has gone and signed up for the army and he's going to go defend his country and that makes Sonny really upset. And he's like, you know, those people are saps because they risk their lives for strangers. Your country's not your blood, etc. And I 
like cannot figure out how to feel about that scene or what it's mm. trying to signal to me because then it, it ends with you know slowly the family members leave kind of one by one from that room and michael's there left alone uh at the table while the rest of the family is yelling surprise for Vito and kind of celebrating and then obviously it cuts to the the final shot of michael sitting alone old very not happy uh and so i guess i just want to like hear from you guys what you make of that because on one hand i feel like you know michael in the first godfather him choosing to you know be a war hero and not do the crime family thing felt like a a good thing like a positive moral place from which he was starting that then we saw him slowly descend to so in my mind the world of the film holds you know michael's choice to defend his country as like a a good thing quote unquote morally but the way it's played it also feels like this is the moment where michael chose something else over family and we're sort of seeing that choice moment juxtaposed with where it ultimately left him, where he's just murdered part of his family and he's super alone and all that stuff. So I was really wrestling with trying to figure out how I felt about, about all that. So I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts or anything that, that came to your head while, while in those moments. Mm. Yeah, I, I was also trying to grapple with all this because it almost seems like that scene's doing a few different things at once. There's there's the like the warmth of that scene. And even mm-hmm. when people are upset at each other, there's like a love in that room. And and it's 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 kind of before things go sour. So it's before uh Connie marries this guy who ends up being a wife beater. And you know, it's it's everything's like there's like hope and possibility in the air in that room. And and it's a complete family. The family hasn't splintered apart yet. And and I think that is just in such stark contrast to where Michael's family is, you know, where mm. it's just the most, you know, just horrible situation with his kids and his wife. You know, everybody's miserable and nobody's happy. There's no love in that house anymore. He just killed his brother. You know, every, it's like the opposite of the kind of completeness and warmth of that dinner table. So on the one hand, there's that where it's kind of like this is a scene about what family what this family was and under his stewardship look what it's become <laughs> you know like like if if we were following Vito's story from the time he was a kid up and uh, this is like the end of Vito's story basically like this is like these are the fruits of his like labor like he did manage mm-hmm. to be yes he's a mob boss but he was kind of this like weirdly ethical mob boss like as ethical as you can be and like like he took care of people in a way that created the sense of like love and completeness in his home um and and the way michael has taken that mantle has like actually just dissolved all of it and it's Mm -hmm. a cold empty sad house now um but then like you said michael then there's the weird like other aspect of michael choosing to join the army and kind of wanting out of the family and the fact that he stays alone at the table while they all greet the father, that's also like this, this other, you could read that as like a dramatic irony of he was never supposed to be in the position that he ended up in. You know, like he did want out and uh, this like this wasn't this wasn't the path that he wanted. So I, so I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 I don't have a clear single thing to get from that scene. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, one issue is the fact that Coppola had to rewrite it that day when Brando <laughs> didn't show up. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering what was going on with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. That was yeah. like, yeah. it must be a conscious choice not to be showing him. You know? Right. <laughs> um, so, th- so there's that, obviously. And then um, he still yeah, went I'm... and cast him in Apocalypse Now, like, oh man, right. yeah. <laughs> glutton for punishment. Okay. Yeah. But... yeah. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I yeah, I definitely read it I, primarily. Uh, I read it as kind of what you were saying, Alex, of just this juxtaposition of like at, at when the movie is at its sort of darkest point, or I guess Michael is at his darkest point. We are showing this, um, you know, like could have been a fractured timeline, right? Where he did go and join, join the Marines as he does, obviously, but then continues that lifestyle by saying, you know, Tom says, Hey, we have big plans for you. And then Michael says, yeah, but those are your plans. You and my father don't get to decide what, I, what I'm going to do, which of course, then we see Michael deciding who Connie gets to marry and all this kind of stuff. Right. So I, I do think that is the, the main point of that scene is to sort of almost go even darker with that juxtaposition and say, like, look at dark, just killed his brother, Michael juxtaposed against fresh face. I don't want to be involved with this family. I'm going to go do good. I'm going to go do my own thing, Michael. Uh, whether it, it achieves that, and you know, with all the stuff you guys are talking about, I don't know. But to me, that's that's the main the main point of it. Yeah, I mean, echo what you guys are saying. I think it's really fascinating the way that 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 scene is shot. It has that like almost Rockwellian feel, mm-hmm. you know, from the end of the table where you can mm-hmm. kind of see down the table of like all the family sitting together and everything. Um, and so, yeah, it's sort of signaling to you like the idyllic American Italian American family, but um you know here are the the family values and this like yeah the warmth to the scene and everything they're sharing a meal right um you know sharing a meal together like is one of the most basic like trust exercises that you can do with anybody um and i think it's really interesting i like would love to just spend an hour talking about food in these movies um it's just it's all really fascinating um but so i i think that yeah that's all a part of it I think that the uh, the generational like father son aspects are really on display in this scene. Um, You know, Vito is this giant of a man to everyone. Right. He's the godfather. Like and I don't think, you know, it's interesting that the title of the book and the title of these these films is the godfather. And like I am I like. I can only think of it as referring to Vito. So like even in the Godfather part two, it's like, I understand that there's a dual meaning where it's also about Michael and you know, he's Don Corleone now and whatever. Um, But I still think of it as being about Vito. Right. Um, And he is like this mythic figure, like this rags to riches, like capitalist American, like giant of a success story. Right. He's incredibly came, you know, on the, on the boat as an immigrant as a child with nothing and like quarantined in a room for three months by yourself when you're nine years old at Ellis Island and, and all of this stuff. So it is just like this sort of mythic American figure that like is not real in so many ways, right. Is like, is a a myth um, and a myth to which like his sons are measuring themselves against. Right. Like Sonny and Michael and Fredo, poor Fredo, um, 
are are measuring themselves against this. This is their measure of what a man is, right? And there's so much in these films about like men and masculinity and like, may your first child be a masculine child right. <laughs> um, and all of this stuff. And so it's like the, and you know, that's Michael's obsession also about his son that, mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make it right. That um, Kay decides to end up deciding not to keep the baby, um, which is, we can get to that scene too. It's like create, it's, it's very intense, but um, there's this real pressure p- placed on sons to be like their fathers and their mm-hmm. fathers are these like, figures that they are supposed to emulate and become and like there's no way to succeed at it Sonny can't succeed at it michael can't succeed at it right like for and and fredo can't succeed at it for for various reasons right they all have these things and part of it is because Vito isn't real like it feels like these movies are telling us a story about a man that isn't a real person like it just there's just no way to uh, for them to continue like being this ethical mob boss it like it doesn't <laughs> exist um and like you can't put you can't hold all of these things at once you can't put your family first and keep them safe while you're also like engaged in crime and like mm-hmm. unethical business practices you can't do both of those things at the same time they're they're in fundamental um like they they're in fundamental conflict you cannot have both you cannot be a good father and keep your family safe while you are also exploiting like you know uh, exploiting business and and like all this inexploitative business um it just doesn't work that way and so i i don't know for me that's what i get from that scene are just these these children and and tom too right measuring mm-hmm. themselves against Vito, and it's so telling i think it's perfect Vito's not in that scene because it helps again to like reinforce this mystique around him of just like there's Mythic like a veto shaped hole. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. In all of these sons imaginations of what a man is. And it's like they none of them are ever going to be that man. Yeah. Well, and and I think ultimately what I arrived at is the scene, kind of like you said in the beginning, Alex, holds all of this. Like I think yeah. there is just so much thematic complexity. Yeah, like layers happening that are all in this one scene but can't be resolved to a single thing uh and that's like frustrating but i think that's you know part of it and part of this whole system and and the family that we're seeing happen you know all of, all of the context around it all the things we've been saying and so anyway i just i thought it was a really interesting scene that i really didn't remember from seeing it before but this time i was like how could i not remember the scene like now it's the only scene i can think about after watching these two films back to yeah. mm-hmm. well yeah speaking of memorable scenes um you know the the scene that always stood out for me even from like my first viewing was that scene uh where Kay finally confronts michael and and you know reveals that she had an abortion and i think that that scene was always so like cathartic because <laughs> it's like you just i'm always wanting i want more with Kay, and i, I want I, yeah. I do want to like be with the women in this world more and understand like what's going on with them. And we, we are denied their inner life for long stretches of the film. And I always find uh, one of the lines she says that is so interesting and is making kind of a thematic statement. She says something about like this whole Sicilian thing, like needs to end. Mm -hmm. She kind of like 
referencing the fact that it was going to be a boy and it's almost like i'm not going to let you keep doing this thing this right. father son thing that is that has gotten so like twisted and you know in her opinion um like we're not going to do that to the next generation it's going to stop here i'm like i have the power as like the wife as like the childbearer i have this power actually in this relationship to stop it right right here and now um i think that was just such an interesting scene when thinking about the whole father son uh yeah the veto-shaped hole and all that stuff you've got this kind of changing times new generation mm -hmm. you know, and and it's like you know there there's this in the corleone family there's this feeling of like we're going to just keep repeating the patterns of our kind of family history as if times aren't changing as if we're not now in the late 50s almost into the 60s uh in america maybe this old world thing we're doing is just not tenable anymore mm. and i think k is kind of part of the untenability of it like 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 she does not cannot you know just submit to this pattern anymore um so yeah i was found that, that seemed very cathartic and i i think i always want i wish there was more of that in the film um because i just i i like having michael confronted and and having her wield this power over him is just a very uh, intense and cathartic moment Mm -hmm. while also being like totally heartbreaking that like yeah. that's the only I mean, kind of power de devastating yeah, right absolutely yeah. devastating right yeah. like that's <laughs> what makes it yeah so intense that all yeah. those things are happening at once yeah yeah there's this beautiful like little mini arc um in that ends in that scene but it's the scene where michael comes in and he sees Kay and she's sitting and i think she's sewing by the window mm -hmm. Um, it's like, he's heard that she's lost the baby. Right. And so he comes in and, and the house is all completely quiet. Right. Which is interesting because I talked in the last movie about like the presence of children and how like noisy and disruptive they are, um, you know, which signals a variety of things, but also like chaos and danger. Um, and the house is, is totally and completely quiet and Kay is sitting there at the window and I, I think she's sewing, um, yeah. but she doesn't see him. Right. And so we can see in Michael's face this like image of who his wife is. Right. He's like feeling so sad for her because in his mind, she lost the baby and she must be so sad. And like, um, but she's got her back to him and she never turns around. Right. And she like never sees him basically. Um, and then he just kind of leaves in that scene. And then he goes and he talks to his mother, which I think is so interesting. It's like the only time we hear like, right. Mama Corleone <laughs> say anything. Um, but, you know, it it's like sort of the crux of the thematic question that Michael is asking. Like, maybe, maybe father, maybe our, my dad lost his family, right? Like in trying to keep his family, maybe he lost them. Um and she's like, well, you feel, you know, you feel that way because you lost your child, but you'll have more children. Right. And like, again, it's kind of speaking hope into this. And it's kind of that last, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Alex, that this is a little bit of a disillusionment arc. It's it's actually, according to K.M. Wyland, would be more of a a, a corruption arc, mm. um, which is, you know, in, in K.M. Wyland's book, Creating Character Arc, she makes a distinction um, between the two. And this is like sort of the quintessential corruption arc and, you know, Shakespearean. Mm um archetypes are in there as well um 
but there is always a point at the crisis in a corruption arc where there's a glimmer of hope, right? Where it's like, this is the crisis of Michael, where he's like, am I doing the right thing? Maybe I'm not. Um, and searching his soul. And we think he might choose, choose like a good way out of this. Um, and it's, it's learning that Kay is not at all the person he thought she was and did not at all experience what he thought she did um, when she lost the baby that seals Michael's fate. And that like mm. ultimately seals Fredo's fate and, and mm. the fate of the family. Right. Um, because that hardens Michael's resolve into like being more controlling. Right. It's sort of this like, right. Dad tried to control the family and he kind of lost his way. Maybe, you know, sort of that open question that he asked his mother and then, learning that like, wait, I don't have control of this family. People are openly defying me left and right. And my solution is clamp down. And it's that scene where I'm like, first of all, <laughs> I'm like, he's going to kill you. The look on God is so Al scary Pacino's when it cuts face. to him. It's like there will be blood. <laughs> like, it is. Yeah. It, it cuts back to him. And I'm like, dear God, like <laughs> you're, how could you say this to Michael Corleone? Um, but it's, that's also the scene where I know he's going to kill Fredo, right? Like, mm. I know that he's not, he's done searching his soul. He's made up his mind about what kind of man he's going to be. And so, yeah, it's this, it's that really beautiful little turn at that, at the crisis where you think he might choose the way out. And then it's that scene that's just like, nope, Kay has cemented it all because he's realized he isn't in control and like, she's, betrayed him in his mind the same way that Fredo did the same, you know, it, right. it's all, it's all mixed in there. Yeah. Heavy movie. Lots of stuff yeah. going on. Yeah. <laughs> There's like uh, so much we haven't even touched on at all. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, yeah, why don't I move into lessons and we can continue to investigate it through the lens of lessons. Um, Brian. Do you have a lesson that you want to share with me? I do. I was not ready to get to lessons. Um, it's, we didn't even talk like the Fredo, uh, the hug at the, at the funeral. We got to talk about which, it. Which like, oh, it just feels so heartbreaking when you know what's coming. But I have to imagine watching the movie for the first time. You're like, oh, okay. Like, they're fine now. And, you know, um, and then we didn't even talk about Frank Pantangeli, largely just because I want to say, your father did business with Hyman Roth. Your father respected <laughs> Hyman Roth. But your father never trusted Hyman Roth. <laughs> Perfect. Um, wow. But but also that scene, the um the scene between Frank and Tom, uh, where they talk about like the Romans, you know, who yeah. would, would go, you know, just oh God. Like talk about beautiful a beautiful use of subtext that's not at all subtext, you know, like totally. how can subtext be as loud as possible and like go just watch that scene between Tom and Frank. It's it's so good. He's like their families were always taken care of. He's like, yep, don't worry. You know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um but my lesson um is uh we're thinking I was thinking about the sort of cinema verite, the documentary feeling of these movies. And I was trying to sort of 
track where it comes from and what makes it work so well. Um, the You know, that feeling that you are just immersed in this world and they just sort of put a camera there and you are sort of watching these characters exist. Um, and there, I mean, obviously this has been talked about plenty and, and there are plenty of things, but I was just thinking like these movies specifically, what does it well? And a huge thing that comes to mind is just these wide shots where there's just so much going on, you know, and, and there's like, something going on in the background when the um when the landlord comes in to talk to Vito there's like a guy like doing the sign on the window or whatever and then there's always like someone go even when when Vito says like I make him an offer you don't refuse presumably the first time he's ever said that like there's people walking by like so you don't even get a close up of him saying that iconic line it just sort of <laughs> is happening while other people are walking by um and so there's just always like there's people buzzing around in the background. So it just makes it feel like they shot a scene in the middle of this crowded street. Right. Um, and then there's just sound design things. Like when you're in Sicily, there's just like birds chirping. And, you know, we even talked about in the first movie, how the, um, in the midpoint scene, like the sound design is diegetic. So it's like the, all the things that are happening in the character are happening outside in the world too. Um, there are shots where it feels like the camera wasn't expecting a character to walk into frame. So when um, Hyman Roth's, I guess, wife comes in to give them uh, like coffee, like we never even see her. It's just sort of like the camera is focused on these two men. And that's like thematic, too, for what the scene is doing. But it's also just makes it feel like, oh, th this this person walked in and the cameras weren't set up to like shoot another person. <laughs> but again, it makes it feel like you're a fly on the wall for this scene. Um, and the, the, the obviously the quality of the film, this like muted soft feel that it has and just so many little character moments. Hyman Roth asking for a smaller piece of cake. Like, there's just so many <laughs> things where it's just like, oh, they didn't have to put that there. But it just now I feel like I'm watching Lee Strasberg, like one of the inventors of yeah, theater, right. like <laughs> like just act, you know, and and or not act really just like be himself. Um, and so point of all this is I was thinking today when do we get this in movies and we get it in dramas for the most part we don't get it in big blockbuster movies um i'm watching red rocket right now which is the um from the the filmmaker from who did the florida project which mm. is like the florida project is like the most the, oh, yeah. this kind of movie making that we that we see these days um and but it's like dramas are already characters being together right so it's like that's just like an extra layer of of reality but you don't get it in these big blockbuster movies they've tried with things like having john favreau direct iron man and louis leterrier direct incredible hulk gavin hood directing x-men origins wolverine chloe zhao directing uh eternals it's like those movies are very different in terms of their quality but it's like what if we got this realistic like down-to-earth filmmaker to direct this like, superhero <laughs> movie and it's like that can work until cartoons kick trains at each other and then it's like i don't really feel like <laughs> i'm right. believing this world anymore um but uh but i think that i i guess my my lesson is i want to see more of that and i want to see more movies try to really push this this feeling of I am just really genuinely immersed in this world and I don't need every, you know, and it doesn't work for every movie, obviously. Some movies you want to see every shot beautifully, like call attention to itself and stylized and stuff. But I feel like so many genres other than drama could benefit from what The Godfather does, which is takes this big, sweeping, epic blockbuster type story and films it in this kind of documentary style way where I feel like I am a fly on the wall of this world and watching it. 
that went a lot of places, but that's kind of the the general thing I was thinking about uh, as it was as I was watching this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, yep. I like it. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> well, my lesson is actually a little bit related to that, which is that I was thinking about how both of these films um, use crowds and extras and mm-hmm. it's masterful. Like it's it's so masterful because it creates and I've talked a little bit about this. I think I was it was like in the in uh, Batman Begins podcast. I talked about like party scenes and um, like crowd scenes and how they immediately create stakes. Right. When like if there's a scene between two people and they don't get along, no one cares. Right. And they're like in a room by themselves. No one cares. But if you put 30 other people around them in the room, it immediately makes the scene really uncomfortable. And we all start to like really get worried because there's human collateral around like and so if the disagreement escalates then it is going to get exponentially worse like two dudes in a room could kill each other and we would be like all right well those guys died but if they start shooting at each other and there's 30 people 50 people 200 people around it immediately creates stakes and these films that's part of the reason why they feel so big and so epic is that so often the like murders and um, or just like the family business, the dirty laundry is just out there for the entire world to see. And the, you know, streets are packed with people um, or the party is absolutely packed with people. And so like, yeah, I don't know. I was just thinking about like Fredo's wife getting drunk at the opening party. Mm. It's like, woman, you are going to get, Fredo killed like (laughs) because you can't just be acting this way at this party right like but if it were a small intimate family party no one would care but it's like it's this aspect of the frontward facing the face of the family right is at stake and so every single gesture every single way that you behave outwardly towards the world you know imperils the family potentially and so um I just think it's really great and of course the most like the one of the best like utilizations of this is the scene where uh at new year's where they're like on that big packed crowded dance floor and you know michael says i know it was you fredo mm-hmm. um it's like the stakes feel so high because if he said that and they were in a room alone we would be like oh boy this is a nasty confrontation but in a room absolutely full of people with everybody celebrating and the music going so loud it feels like anything could happen it it's chaos it's tension it's stakes so um in conclusion maybe put 50 more people in all of your confrontation scenes yeah, in your yeah. screenplay i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah. Real quick, it reminds me of um, Love Actually, weirdly, um, where uh, after Emma Thompson finds the necklace and then yeah. she confronts Alan Rickman mm. about it. But there's like people coming up and saying hi to her and oh, she has yeah. to like Emma Thompson really her way yeah. to just be like, hey, good to see you. And then like continue the conversation she's having with her husband. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that both of your lessons are kind of my lesson or what what I was thinking about the most i think reflecting back on like the filmmaking of of this and that scene right where like you're talking about trisha you know i know it was you fredo you broke my heart so much is happening to make that scene so tense and electric in the filmmaking beyond just the 
the story point, the plot point of what's happening and the revelation that Michael knows, like that's all dramatic. But to kind of what you were saying, Brian, that the filmmaking is, yeah, there's this like this texture to it and like enough patience with it and the use of the crowds, the use of the sound. It's not, you know, a intense, you know, Hollywood musical score making us feel mm -hmm. the emotions. It's the sound, it's the chaos, it's the, yeah, the setting, the context, the people, all these things, like the design of the scene is there to create this kind of electric tension that amplifies the the content, the, the simple lines of dialogue and simple action that's happening so that we not only understand intellectually what this means, but we feel the the stress and all of the yeah the, the electricness of it is the word i keep coming back to like i feel like i'm i'm in there and i can feel just the emotions buzzing um and i yeah i think it's just to your point also brian about the the filmmaking and having other genres borrow a lot of you know these techniques you know thinking about the the beginning of the movie where they're on the lake and it's that party scene uh, you know, like to your point, Trisha, there's a ton of people there, but like, you know, an Iron Man movie could have a ton of people that's like, here's our wide shot. Look, there's a party going on and immediately we go inside and like the end. Right. But this movie takes time. We see uh, Frank, you know, go up and like interact with the band and like you really get a sense that there's like <laughs> people <laughs> are... <laughs> <laughs> right we're like in the moment i'm like who is this guy what why is this happening why is it going on so long but it makes you really feel like there are people there like lives are happening yeah and that you know the the actions that are then happening inside are going to affect those people there's like a texture and a believable world outside of you know the walls of of what's happening um so yeah i think that's just it's so many things are happening in this film to make that happen. So it's hard to just like name it. This is the thing that it does. The the that is the technique used to use. But I feel like that that midpoint scene with Fredo is like where it all kind of there's a nice crescendo in that and it, the way it explodes and just ugh, it just it feels like alive. Like it feels like the film is mm -hmm. alive in that moment. And so so many movies don't feel alive a lot of the time. Yeah. And just really quickly it's also the gesture right the kiss is such mm, a yeah. it's such a classical image it's like a classical juxtaposition of like the intimate gesture with the like combative you know spirit of it or the betrayal of it right so it's like very judas you know kind of betrayed mm -hmm. with a kiss it's like very um yeah uh harnessing something that is like deep in our storytelling like lore as like a symbol, right? It's a symbol that we understand that's being brought in here. That's just, again, when you can harness something that's like ancient, like an ancient symbol of intimacy that is like then connected with betrayal, you you get a lot of, you get like emotionality from your audience for free because <laughs> you're like taking this classical symbol out of like, yeah, ancient literature. So um, uh, also the, <laughs> the Al Pacino's performance <laughs> is quite something. <laughs> it's okay like yeah well and it, it's it's also in like an intuitive gesture right you know of that course. this is something you do with someone that you love right and that is the reason al pacino hates him so much in this moment is because yes. of the love that right. was right. there in his breaking broken. yeah just, exactly yeah both these movies have very good middle sections mm -hmm. thumbs up 
<laughs> Alex, what's your lesson? Yeah, mine's mine's pretty simple compared to the complexity of all that. Um, but it's kind of just like save the cat, <laughs> you know, like, 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 a, like a more a more complicated save the cat with with once again the De Niro you know veto uh, storyline, mm. where it's just there could be a version of this movie where it's it's about a man who wants revenge his whole life, you know. So it's like his right. mom gets killed, his brother gets killed, his dad gets, and so it's now it's like the whole story is I'm gonna get powerful in America to like buy an olive oil company and go back and like kill the guy who killed my family. And I just wouldn't be that engaged with that story. You know, like I would just be like, yeah, it's another revenge story. Yeah. He'll, he's so angry and he wants to get revenge for his family. And you know, revenge is a powerful emotion and we have a lot of stories about revenge, but I'm so much more compelled and on board with a story about a man who eventually does get revenge, but who has values and who, over and over again makes choices that aren't about a selfish desire for something just for him like he he cares about people besides himself and and seems to have a moral code even when he goes and gets revenge it does feel like it's within a code um, right and and i think that's just a really important thing to remember you know if you're gonna do a revenge story uh i'm probably gonna lose interest if it's just about a dude who is really angry and wants revenge. Like, I think I need more from a character to be on their side, rooting for them with them for a whole movie. Yeah. I was thinking about how much work the scene does where the, his baby is sick mm. and he's just mm -hmm. standing. Like, I think it's sunny, I guess. Um, it's, it's actually, um, I think it, it's Fredo. It's Fredo. It yeah, okay. It's almost like explaining something about yeah, Fredo. Yeah. Like he had pneumonia he, as a kid. Yeah. And that's <laughs> why he's Fredo now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it just, you know, all we see is Vito standing there looking at his sick child. And it's just like, again, the sympathy you get from that, like how dire his situation is, like how tenuous he feels like his position is in this world, right? As an immigrant and as somebody who doesn't have prospects or, or real opportunities. And like, it just, it's just a doctor attending to like a sick baby. But again, I love that the movies about families should have kids in them. And it seems obvious <laughs> right. to say, but they should. <laughs> and I was paying attention to the baby stuff this mm -hmm. time, Trisha, because you mentioned like screaming babies are used in this in this these movies. And you know, there's a really clear screaming baby when Vito starts to get involved with yep. kind of a mafia world when he has you know, his friend come over and install the rug that they stole out of somebody's house. Like the baby is the baby screaming. is just screaming the yep. entire scene. And I yep. was really attentive to that. Like, OK, I see see what he's doing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also love the uh, the slow crossfades between timelines. So it's yeah. like yeah. Michael tucking in Anthony and then it just slowly goes to Vito looking at Santino. And it does that a few times. It's just always so gorgeous. Yeah, yeah all, all the crossfades are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to your point about the revenge thing, Alex, I think it's, it's, you know, revenge is a, a driver. It's a goal. It's the thing that's going to happen at the end of the story. And it's either going to go one of two ways. And so it's like, you can't rely on that as, you know, the thing that we're invested in the whole time. I think it's more interesting, like you're saying, is if it's, what is the character going to be driven to do or become? Like, what are mm -hmm. they wrestling with? What are they sacrificing in order to do this thing? And so, and I think that's, again, what this movie is doing with its brilliant juxtaposition of Vito and Michael's storylines. And 
to your point also, Trish, about this being called the Godfather and how Vito, you know, the Godfather as a name, as a, you know, position is, you know, one of family and, you know, taking care of it's like a, it's a term of love, right? It's not a like, he's the evil vengeance man. Like that's not his nickname. It's the Godfather. It's a family thing. And so I think that is an interesting part of that contrast that's happening, mm-hmm. seeing Vito rise to power, but as the godfather, as someone mm-hmm. that is taking care of people, whereas Michael is kind of clinging to power by jettisoning, jettisoning all the, the caring that he has and the people closest to him. And that's mm-hmm. uh, just another, by calling it the godfather, I think you're also getting some of that yeah. thematic conversation in there. Definitely. <sighs> dense, dense movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's an intermission in it also. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, thank Which God. Which I appreciate. Yeah. Three right. and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Should do intermissions. Also, we didn't talk about John Cazale, who just like at, died far too young, but the his entire right filmography on. is The Godfather, The Conversation, Godfather 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Wow. And he was in a relationship with no misses. Right. And he was in a relationship with Meryl Streep uh, for the last couple of years of his life. So like wins wow. all around for John. That man Cazale. lived. Yeah. <laughs> also, I was Bruno Kirby as like yeah. young Clemenza. I was like, wait, is that the guy from when Harry met Sally? Uh-huh. Like that's yeah. his friend. He comes with Carrie Fisher. Uh, <laughs> super random. Uh cool. Okay. Well, what have you guys been watching besides the Godfather movies? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I am nearly finished with it, but the fifth and final season of Search Party has mm. dropped and I've been watching it over the last few nights. I'm not all the way done. And I like I I'm like so sure it's going to have the most bonkers ending and I cannot wait like because this season is also just so oh God. I love this show. Like, (laughs) Alex, I know you've talked about it before and we've talked about it together. Listen, if you love satire, like razor sharp, incredibly intelligent, like very, very well played on every level satire, Search Party is your show. Go and watch it immediately. Like, give every person that has written Search Party their own show. I don't care. Like, I want to see what these people are doing because they're so brilliant. Every season of this show, um, like, is wildly different than the season that came before. And they're all so good and so smart and just skewering different aspects of millennial culture. And, like, they just see, the writers of the show see all the way through millennials to our core but like into this society that made us too, like into the world that made us and and why we are the way we are. And like, it's so great. Like, anyway, all the four leads are incredible. Like Aaliyah Shawkat, uh, John Early, John Reynolds and, and Meredith Hagner are all like amazing. Um, I don't know why the show doesn't get more love. It's like seriously one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. So Search Party is wrapping up. I'm two episodes from the end of the entire thing. I get the feeling it's going to blow my mind because already, like, I can't believe what a wild ride season five has been. Um, Please just go watch Search Party, I guess. So it's, like, officially, like, the series finale. Yeah, this is the the last season. This is, yeah. 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 So I have two episodes to go. So I can't tell you how it actually concludes the whole series, but I will tell you that, like, 
I, I just want to go back and start the entire like show over and watch the whole thing again. And like, it's just so brilliant. <laughs> I share all of Trisha's feelings exactly. So, thank you for voicing exactly uh, how I feel. So good. I just love it I just so much. Feels so seen in the most uncomfortable way. And yes. like, yes. God, it's and it's also like it's just playing with genre and like playing with like tropes and like it's not just I feel like everybody feels like they have something to say about millennials. But nobody does. Only search party does. Anything that anybody else <laughs> right. wants to say about millennials is boring and trite. And like, you don't know us. But right. Like, like, this is made by does. millennials who understand themselves. <laughs> yeah. In the in the most horrifying way. Yes. Like, yeah. God, it's great. Anyway. Awesome. Cool. OK, great. Brian, what have you been watching? Uh, so I watched Tick, Tick, Boom on nice. Netflix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a movie musical about Jonathan Larson, the writer-composer of Rent, writing and composing a musical that isn't Rent. Uh, so if that's not confusing enough, uh, it's um, it, it's like his, I guess, second musical, which is called Tick, Tick, Boom, which is sort of autobiographical, basically, about him writing his first musical that we all know didn't become a hit. So no spoilers there, right? Because it's not rent. Um, (laughs) And, uh, but then in the movie, he is on stage performing songs and telling the story while also being intercut with us seeing the story itself. More confusing than it actually is. It's actually incredibly watchable and (laughs) it's very watchable. It's just hard to explain (laughs) what is actually. It sounds interesting. All the, Yeah. yeah. But Weird. also, like, when you are watching the footage of the stuff happening, people are also singing there. So it's not just, like, on the stage. You know, it's yeah, it's all yeah. over the place. But it works really well. It's very easy to understand. It's not, uh, uh, you know, when I say things, words complicate for brain. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is his first uh, movie, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, who... Cheat code, Andrew Garfield, really just, good. just yeah. great and lovable yeah. and just so watchable and so talented um, and really fascinating sort of themes uh, or like the major theme of the um, of the story is really interesting and sort of not something you see explored very much uh, in, in media, the creative process and how you make it work and how you make it in the industry and heartbreaking kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah. I really loved it and it's one of my favorite movies of the year so far. I'm doing, I'm starting to do my like catch up of all the previous uh, movies of the previous year. And uh, this is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, I I will say if if you are a screenwriter or creative of any type, you know, the climax of this movie hits very hard. Yeah. (laughs) Conversation with an agent, giving him some real talk is like, yeah. Yeah. Judith Light, by the way. Always. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah like that is true what you're saying is the truth and it is a harsh truth and we all need to hear it and it's horrible (laughs) maybe i'll avoid it alex what have you been watching (laughs) but also inspiring by the end so um i am watching station 11 on hbo Mm. it's a limited series based off uh, the novel of the same name um and i'm only three episodes in but i just find it to be just wonderfully directed conceived shot acted like just a beautiful production and it's just so nice to see uh this very particular type of uh like medium that we have which is kind of like the hbo 
limited series. I think it's almost like even like exclusive to HBO sometimes where you just you get these amazing directors to adapt usually a novel uh, with great actors and they, they're able to tell a long form story over, you know, six, seven episodes, but it's shot like a film. You know, we talk about sometimes uh, we're watching, we, we talked about foundation uh, on Patreon and it's like, this has the huge budget of like the biggest sci-fi movies ever. Why doesn't it feel like a movie? Like what's, mm -hmm. what's different about mm. this that isn't cinematic in the way that we'd like wish it was. And uh, things like Station Eleven, th these limited series are giving me that kind of auteur, cinematic, like refined experience that I usually get from like an Oscar movie. But I get to actually sit with these characters and be in this world for like seven hours, which is awesome. Um, so Station Eleven is it's it's difficult. Uh, it it takes place. I don't know when when they started making this show, but it it takes place during a pandemic at first, which is like ten times maybe like a thousand times worse than COVID. So it's like everybody is dying. Um, so definitely some like trigger warning for <laughs> like pandemic stuff because it's it's really intense. Um, but it's a post-apocalyptic story that is just really unique because we jump forward in time, back in time. And uh, the post-apocalyptic environment that it just, it shows is not the usual. It's not the Mad Max mm. post-apocalypse. It's this very grounded, almost like quirky universe where there's like artists who are traveling in a band, like putting on Shakespeare plays for like the random communities that are still left. You know, it's like just people being people in like the aftermath of a collapse of civilization. And so it's just a really interesting approach to kind of the post-apocalyptic genre. And it's just a very human, very beautiful story. So uh, I'm really enjoying it so far and I can't wait to keep watching Station Eleven on HBO. I, I am all caught up and can also recommend it. I also love, love, love the novel. It's probably my favorite novel I've read in, in the past several years. So wow. if you're a reader, also highly recommended. The show does some very different things from the novel. I think they work. Uh, my friend who I was talking to does not think they work as well. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, they make some really interesting choices. I want to, when you get caught up, Alex, I'll tell you one of the like, something that'll blow your mind. Um, okay. But yes, if you are, if you're a reader, go read the book also. Awesome. And Mackenzie Davis is in it, which yes. is every who is perfectly cast as Kirsten. Like when I picture who I picture in the novel, I'm like, yes. Yeah. Nice. Like Mackenzie Davis can't go wrong. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Michael. Well, speaking of actors that can't go wrong, so I finally watched uh Broadchurch. So yeah. Broadchurch. Uh, if you don't know, is this British show uh and there's three seasons i think that it's pretty clear i haven't researched this but to me it seems pretty clear that the first season was supposed to be a standalone thing mm -hmm. um the first season is amazing uh olivia coleman david tennant jody whittaker lots of really great performers uh it's like a it's like a british version of yeah there's a murder in a small beach town where everyone knows each other and the police officers have to figure out who did it. Like, it's, it's such a, a classic kind of setup for a detective story and solving a murder and a mystery. But then you get sucked into the lives of the people and the relationships. And you're constantly being like, oh, that person did it. And that person did it. What if that person <laughs> did it? What if I did it? Like, the whole time, you're just like... So I, I binged it pretty quickly because I was hooked. And um, yeah, it was... I know... Um, when we talked about the favorite Brian, you mentioned like 
you know, having been an Olivia Coleman fan for mm-hmm. forever, and now I'm like getting to see the thing that, as I understand it, was kind of her big break in terms of now everyone knows how amazing she was. Yeah, for sure. Getting to see her do things with her face that seem impossible <laughs> to do is like, wow, you've just always been amazing. So, uh, first season of Bradchurch, highly recommend. Really, really fun to watch. Indeed. Nice. And I do not recommend the American remake called Grace Point, which stars Anna Gunn and David Tennant as American himself. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you? If you want to watch that? an American remake of Broadchurch, I do recommend Mare of Easttown, though. Because <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say watching this, I was like, wait, did somebody working on Mare of Easttown saw this? Yeah. Um, cool. Excellent. All right. Well. This has been our conversation about Godfather Part 2. We have one more to go. Godfather Part 3 made 20 years later. That that was mm. another thing that was struck me looking at the dates for Part mm-hmm. 2 and Part 1. Is that two years apart between the yeah. release of the first Godfather and Part 2. Like, that's really impressive yeah, very considering impressive. all the things that we're saying and how well it pulls off all of that. Um, yeah, extremely, extremely impressive. Um, will Part 3 be... Tune in next week to find out. I'm so curious now. I'm so I know, curious. I'm, I'm really curious what I'm going to make of make of it now. Excellent. Cool. Well, yes. Uh, thank you to the patrons for supporting the show, for making it possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. And we will see you next week for The Godfather Part 3. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.